From time to time, we will bring you a repeat show. This is an episode from our extensive back catalog resurfacing some of the ideas and thoughts from the past that we believe are still relevant and well worth revisiting. In this UX podcast classic with sensory design consultant Alistair Somerville, we talk about what human-centered design truly means. By using your senses and perception to take in the world around you, you can become more attuned to considering how our humanity fits into the often misguided struggle of repeatedly simplifying interfaces. UX Podcast Episode 306 You're listening to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. I'm James Roy Lawson. I'm a Pat Axpole. With listeners in 172 countries, from France to Hong Kong. And today we are talking to one of my favorite thinkers, Alistair Somerville. He's a sensory design consultant, usability researcher, and workshop facilitator. Alistair joined us for a brief interview back in episode 105 about sensory design. And in this show... We talk around human-centered design and how we as humans perceive everything through a lens, uh, also described in the show as a threshold when experiencing the world around us. So your workshop, Alistair, was really, really physical, uh, not only in the sense that we walked outside a lot, but also with with the work we did with the Jenga block. So as you were speaking, we were arranging uh, Jenga blocks in a way to help us understand what you were saying about spaces and the physicality of our world and how we make decisions and how we move around. It was like, it was insanely powerful. So tell us more about this thing of being present in the moment, the importance of being outside and taking in the world. Yeah, I think when... I, I The Jenga blocks were purchased for the later on in the workshop originally in terms of using them for a model which is able to actually create a three-dimensional representation of how we perceive information and what meaning information content has um which which came out of accessibility projects which I've worked on where we we've had to find a way of describing to people how there is a difference between how people with different sensory and cognitive capacities encounter and perceive information and how the actual sort of meaning exists and that that you need to be able to move the two things apart. But when I was designing the workshop and when I was looking at the necessity of having a model to talk about how a human-centered concept of human perception works, there was this issue that I, I, I was looking at a workshop where there was going to be about 20 to 30 minutes of me pointing at PowerPoint and people writing diagrams. And I knew that wasn't going to work in a sense that it was, it was neither going to be interesting nor was it going to actually achieve a useful purpose in trying to guide people to understanding how being embodied in a space surrounded by information, which, I mean, the workshop was called Walking Through Information, how that sense worked. And so given I was surrounded by 11 boxes of Jenga at the time, 
I began to realise that there might be a way of building the diagram out of the blocks. So it was only about the last week or two that I started. Oh, so this was completely new. It was completely. It was oh, about yeah. a week or two. Yes, it was completely yeah. new mm-hmm. in a sense that previously the mm-hmm. diagrams had been literally just sort of two-dimensional diagrams. Actually, yeah. I mean there are some three D models mm. which I I worked with. Um, and which did sort of, um, if anyone watches my Twitter, they, they will see there are 3D models, which I did build paper prototypes. Mm. But they were all too complex, and they were too hard to construct during a workshop. So the Jenga, it was, I was say, I, I already had it. So it was staring at it and thinking, actually, we can, or I can, easily create a diagram in the, th- the blocks. Mm. And it therefore means that I can enable the participants of the workshop to build the model with me mm. and physically see the meaning of what I'm talking about. Because mm. so the, the strongest images and the, sort of the images which most interested me was the images where people are looking through the thresholds. Exactly. Yeah, and the threshold you built with, the, so you basically you've made doorways yeah. um, from the Jenga mm. blocks to represent... Um, thresholds that and we through. had a Lego figure to actually represent the person looking through yeah so. and, I, and I thought that was yeah. a bit, it was a compared to mm-hmm. just a, a two-dimensional sketch mm-hmm. it was it was a very good way of, of making you think and understand mm-hmm. about spaces because this was something then that stuck up from your paper and represented literally a, a a portal into into somewhere else you look through the, this idea that we're, we're we're permanently moving through information whether be the information be in a threshold which is a physical doorway and, you know, in a physical space, or whether it be a threshold which is framed as a device in our hand. Mm. You know, it, it doesn't, you know, it's, it's all perception. It doesn't matter, but humans move through these thresholds. They look for information, they look for meaning, mm. and they choose to go through. And again, that sort of whole idea of the figure moving through, mm. moving across the table, moving through the spaces of information, that that was what I was trying to get at, because mm-hmm. sort of most of the way in which the two-dimensional use of post-it notes, the two-dimensional use of diagrams, doesn't truly represent a useful way of explaining embodied movement through information. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it's but it was it was very very late on in the process of designing the workshop that it came to me. It was also, I think, forcing us to slow down and actually take in the information because it was like you could have walked us through it in PowerPoint in in five minutes, uh, basically. But it was like you talked one minute, then we worked for two minutes on the blocks, then you talked. So we were really, really focusing on what you were saying and and really by by it being represented in 3D as well, really understanding it. I would not have understood it as well if you had just uh, told us about it. Obviously, but that was an amazing experience. Actually, I'm gonna steal it. <laughs> well, they, they, it's one, one one thing that was interesting. Uh, many things interesting, but one thing I I took away from um, working on the uh, looking at the workshop was how it doesn't immediately come across as as something practically useful. So, so, so mm-hmm. the exercise of, of, yeah. of like exploring spaces, um, when you think about your work anyway, like you explore these spaces and then making a 3D diagram of, of portals and thresholds, um, that, that didn't immediately come across as something I can apply to my work. But what I did find incredibly refreshing and, and enlightening was the, the, the practicing being in the moment, practicing 
going out and exploring spaces. So, so heightening my curiosity and, and observation skills. That, that was maybe a bit more unexpected from, mm. from the workshop. So used to workshop delivering concrete skills, concrete, this is, this is the thing you now apply mm. to your, um, to your daily work. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I generally, I mean, certainly with all the sensory user experience workshops and the emotional design workshops, which I do, in general, I, I mostly warn people that no workshop anyone comes to with me will be of use to them mm-hmm. at work on Monday <laughs> after the conference. Um, and, and that's fine, because for the most part, most conferences have a habit of teaching people tools and processes which are relevant to the work process and relevant to the workplace on Monday. I try to operate in a slightly different space in the sense that I'm trying to talk to people about their individual sense of themselves to change their sense Mm. of how they exist Mm. and how they think about how they are in order that then they can go back and share that sense of being with other mm. people. So it's it's and that's why that you you have these things like sending people out to just listen to the waves and kick the leaves around and all the rest of it because for the most part people don't have time for that because it's it's not part I mean it's a really important part of being human and yet it's not something which is part of most work processes. So you've mm. got to find time and work, you know, you know, this is one of the reasons mm. I do conference workshops. It's a good time to give people time mm. to do the things that matter, but don't have value as far as corporations are concerned. Yeah, my, my favourite slide um, from the presentation was the, the be like the dog. Yes, I mean, be, a, be more like the dog. The, the sort of, yes, the, the photo, I mean, that was, a, again, when I was doing the reconnaissance walks the day before to try and work out where where people could go. Um, yes, I, I was following um, this guy, and it was very clear he was just staring at his phone, but his dog was just wandering around, sniffing, kicking the gravel, all the things. The, the, the dog taking was in, in the moment of experience, mm. taking in the environment, mm. while the man was distracted by his mobile. And it's that mm. that's thing of, can you actually recapture the sense of being a person in an environment? Because you need that baseline of being in the world before you can start talking about how the overlays of information that we place both badly and well into the environment work. So are you saying that we're forgetting to be human almost? Um I find that we are minimizing the experience of what it is to be human Mm -hmm. because by minimizing what it is to be human, it enables us to test products more cheaply. Yeah. Because if if you reduce humans only to tool users... Therefore, you are able to ignore large swathes of what it is actually to be a human being. Mm. So this delimitation of um, of what it is to be human means that we we it's it's a very inward looking sense, and it's it's creating. And I, I I do find, I mean, certainly the more I work on a lot of the perception and sensing stuff, 
that the world of what it is to be human is vast, extraordinarily vast. And that was one of the end themes of yesterday's workshop. Um, and that's that, that we really need to properly consider our humanity. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like we're... They, they, we've we've made it we've made it simple for ourselves to to survive in, in some of our working environments that it, it's just too complex sometimes so so some of these narrowing it's, it's a narrowing strategy to 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 allow us to get through the oh day. it's it's you know and again it's it's an it's an entirely practical response mm. to the way in which design and uh, UX and all these mm. and service design are all viewed within the context of corporate product mm. management and corporate product creation. That's mm. that the messy things to do with user research, to do with research before product, the the things to do with agile in terms of are you asking the right question? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these things, which 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 are messy and difficult to fund, and therefore some the reaction is to to reduce them down in order to minimise friction with other parts yeah. of the departments of the corporation, and yet in in each of those tiny steps back, you start building a wall between what it is that you are testing as a user and what you are testing as a human. Exactly. And we're so focused on interfaces, usually forgetting about the thresholds in between them, but also forgetting that humans are so used to shifting between ways of looking at the world. I think that's one of your one of your core messages that I took away from it was we we, we constant context shift all the time, constantly. And this is something that we don't really think about when we're, when we're designing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, when when I wanted to reframe to the human focused and human centered mm-hmm. uh, perspective on information, the reason I want to do that was because I, I I keep seeing all of these diagrams and all of these sort of discussions of the sort of the, the massive complexity of information in terms of what we have both now and what we're looking at in terms of. You know, augmented and virtual realities and all the mixed realities. And yet, from a human perspective, these kind of apparently impossible situations is something that humans have done forever. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of moving between that book you're reading, that daydream you're having, that walk you go on, that... Um, phone you look at these these are all switches between different forms of reality Mm. and we choose and we have good choosing choice Mm. systems we manage it Mm. from a human perspective this this is this is quite normal we adapt we change i was also thinking you you brought up um yesterday the um the notion of um um was it um hyper reality Hypo reality, yeah, hypo reality, um, and that made me think a lot about how we spend we spend most of our time um, <clears throat> adding information elements, adding interface elements or information um, signage and so on to things to try and make them more understandable. So we, we're we're adding, making things more to try and communicate better. Um, uh, was when you started talking about hyper reality, um, where you you 
you take potentially take things away. So I started wondering about the future of design. That some of the aspects of future design would be maybe helping blur. So it's helping tone things down. That would you 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 take away things to make it more understandable. Yes, I mean I, I you know I have um, many friends who who use um, different forms of headphones and different forms of coloured lens, sort of analog solutions to actually adjust their um, perception of the world mm, right. because they, 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 they need to control and have a sense of control and agency over how, how they see and perceive the world around them because mm. it's too loud, it's too bright. Mm. And therefore, you already, you know, there, there are many, many ways in which people are already doing this. To some extent... It's just that those purposes and those people, for the most part, these these are people um, with cognitive impairments. They're not viewed well. They're not seen by the industry, and therefore that that the, there is a whole behaviour area of you know ways in which we deal with this and ways in which we manage this, which which are just the design industry is unavailable you know is unaware of and yet yeah. it's it's there mm. and it will become probably more important over time and now i've suddenly thought of an episode of black mirror oh really <laughs> episode of black mirror where they they effectively use um augmented reality or or hybrid reality to to block people mm. That you basically if someone oh, someone okay. basically you can you get angry with mm. them mm. and you basically mute them and they, mm. you, they can't, you can't see them or hear them or anything. They become just basically a white, whited out figure <laughs> um, in their world. Yeah, it's like there's, um, there's China Meowville's novel, mm. The City in the City, mm. which, which is a nice. I mean, it's, it's a detective novel, but it's, it's a novel which is mm. nice because it's, it talks of a city. Well, it talks of two cities where, who are very close to each other and which people travel between. And they're different cities. But, and there is a spoiler warning in this, um, <laughs> but actually they all live in the same city. It's just the two groups of people dress in different forms of clothing and they are trained from birth not to see people wearing certain types of clothing. Uh. The two cities literally physically are co-located but the populations cannot see each other. They cannot perceive each other. It's a beautiful conceit. Mm. That's scary. It is, yes. It's similar to when yeah. you think about um, multiple dimensions. Mm. So, so if you get into like, like fifth dimensions mm. and so on, where mm. there can be beings existing mm. on a dimension that we aren't, mm. we can't perceive. Yes, I mean, yeah. sort of the intersectionalities. Mm. I mean, there's... There's a whole area of um, stuff which got cut from the workshop to do with homological um, space, um, mm. which is which is a much larger sense of um, information design over mm. space and um, time, um, which which got deleted because it would have been too much. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that was probably a sensible decision. Oh, yes. <laughs> It's really interesting, but it is it is something um, which which um, it's it's a way of actually reframing a lot of the way we think about information by mm. actually really understanding how it 
how objects and artifacts move through time. Mm. Um, and it's, uh, but yes, too much for three hours. Yeah, mm. I think so. So, in in a sense, you're not part of the UX design industry, uh, and in a big sense, you really are as well because you're constantly being invited by the UX industry to speak. Why do you think that is? And if you put your critical glasses on, what is your perception of the UX industry? I mean, I came across the UX industry, what, 2013, um, and sort of have sort of been working with projects and um, with companies and, uh, yes, and certainly in conferences Mm. um, since then. Um, I think on, on one level, I'm invited along because simply because I mean I do because I come out of sensory and accessibility design um, I do have very very strong opinions on what being human-centered actually means Mm -hmm. Um, and secondarily I think it's because I'm also both willing to and to a certain extent now permitted to talk and workshop through subjects that have no meaningful benefit in the next two (laughs) weeks of people's careers. And yet I get feedback from people months down the line Mm. telling me that they actually understood what I was trying to get at, Mm. in a sense that I, I don't want to talk about, and I can't talk about, um, practical process and stuff because I don't work with the you know I do not work in the industry in that sense, but I intersect with it enough to be able to know the sort of issues which are around and the mm. sort of tools, um, and I'm therefore aware of where there are gaps because I'm I am from a slightly askew angle on the whole thing, and therefore I'm interested in trying to describe the spaces which look like they will be something the industry will be coming across at some point in the next two years. Yeah. And that's that's mostly what I try. And that's, I think, why, therefore, I get invited to do conferences is I'm willing to put people through experiential workshops because I believe experiential is the way to be able to yeah. make people and enable people to understand you know i need people to understand the thing themselves i can't just tell people they need to actually live the experience to understand what the heck's going on um and then i'm allowed to do weird crap mm. um i am permitted because yeah. because i'm I am known for doing it. Therefore, mm. there, there, therefore, there is a relationship mm. in that sense that I'm I can go and make people go for walks. Mm. I can have people play with Jenga in mm. a way that that you know many people probably are not permitted. True, um, because because there is this sense that the process and the tool must be mm. concretely connected to work process as it exists now and that 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 very very specific connection to it has to be locked against what we are already doing means that the industry can only move very very incrementally forward on certain subjects 
yet sometimes you actually need to be able to bound over to be able to say, but the space you're entering is extraordinarily huge and we at least need to have some mm. idea of what that space might be. You know, a lot of the time, you know, I don't have answers on a lot of this stuff, mm. but at least people may have a better way of considering the possibilities. I think you're actually allowing us to understand ourselves better and the world we're in better, ourselves as humans, allowing us then to make these leaps when we have to in the industry. Now we need to start looking at it this way because now we've done done this already. Now we need to start looking at it in another way. Hmm. I think that lasting impression is is really what, what <laughs> I love about what you do. It's, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for sitting down with us, Alistair. Certainly. Thank you. During the interview of Alistair, we, we, we mentioned the, um, the wonderful picture he, he took um, and actually incorporated into his um, slides that about, um, um, yeah, be the dog. Um, but I, I want to give a bit more, I want to describe that a little bit more to, to the listeners that um, Alistair being Alistair, he was wandering around um, in the area surrounding the hotel that the that URI conference was was being held at, and he'd spotted a man, and this was a man walking his dog, and the the dog was having a really good sniff. It was it was sniffing everything around it. It was it was taking in the world that it was experiencing and and, and giving the world time to 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 share its experiences, and of course the dog's connected by a lead to its owner, and the man. He's stood by the side of the dog, waiting for his dog, um, but he's just staring at his telephone. In the actual picture, you can see that there's there's a there's a path, it's a gravel path, there's a curb, there's a bush, there's of course a dog, um, there's a, a small boat, there's a, there's a there's a waterway, um, there's a railing, there's a rock face, there's a I think there's even a there's a building or it might even be um, there's I think it's an office building in the background or in a high raised bridge. There's a there's a car. There's so much going on in this picture. The guy's looking into his telephone. So Alistair um, put some labels on this, and there's a big arrow sign that says don't be this pointing to the man be the dog pointing mm. to the dog and and just that one picture though i think um it sums up so much of what alistair was trying to or is teaching and and um trying to get us to understand yeah, i agree it's it's amazing and that's what he really forced us to do to actually be the dog and, and go out and Listen to sounds in a way that you usually don't do and look around, smell, uh, look at colors, the sizes of different things. Listen. It's, it's just... Listen uh, to things. It's so, there's so much we miss uh, that is going on out there. And, I, and the funny thing about what... what when you, I listen to the subtext sort of what Alistair is saying. He's almost mocking us because you're calling yourself a human-centered designer as a UX designer. But I mean... You almost have no idea of what human-centered is because you're working with these screens and these interfaces, but you don't work with the whole complete human being. So he's he's, he's saying exactly. like he's looking two years into the future and he, he's he's looking at this is where you have to go. So he's preparing us for that movement towards understanding humans in a more broad sense. Yeah, we've got the user experience designers and we're talking about users. And as Alice has said about we've we've reduced 
um, humans to users, mm. and and we've cut off our senses. We've we've boxed ourselves in, um, and to do human centered design, you have to be a more human mm. designer, and part of being a more human designer is properly considering the 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 real world around you. Exactly. Understanding, well, understanding what it means to be human, because the danger is that we're forgetting when we're categorizing people into these or compartmentalizing them into these groups. We're forgetting what it means to be a human with the full experience of what is going on throughout the day. And, and people have these thresholds. They're filtering out some stuff, looking at other stuff. Uh, I, I was thinking of actually, there's a, been a campaign in Sweden where you have uh, ADHD children who want to wear baseball caps inside. Uh, and usually right. that's considered it's like, it's that's considered rude usually uh, yeah. in, in most Western cultures. But for them, for the for the people who are struggling in school or the children who are struggling in school, wearing these it helps them filter out parts of their environment that keep them from concentrating well. So in my reality, wearing a baseball cap indoors may be perceived as rude, but in their reality, it's a coping mechanism to manage their life. And we need to be able to see these differences in how we approach reality and what we are experiencing differently as different individuals. Going throughout yeah. a day and going through your city, you're, you're seeing different stuff depending on who you are. Usually people just ignore and filter out aspects of city life like the homeless people or the people who are trying to sell you stuff, things that you think are for tourists. And we're filtering out stuff all the time. But sometimes we're, we can become uh, conscious of them if somebody forces us to. Mm. Yes, exactly. And by in Alice's mm. workshop, when he, he forced us to create portals, mm. thresholds, um, related to um, a, a world close by to us. So, so then we, we went outside and, and experienced those portals and thresholds um, in, in real life. So, you know, the group I followed, um, we went into the hotel, we went outside the hotel, but then made our way back into the hotel because we were going to, we were going to have lunch was the, was the task that we, we tried to follow. So then each time you go through one of the portals, whether it's the door to the hotel or the, um, the door into the restaurant and so on, you really kind of think about what happens, what am I, what am I, what information am I taking in? What information do I need at this point in order to make it successfully through the portal? Right. And there's hap things happening between the portals as well, and you're, you may take up your phone, and that becomes a portal. So I mean, it's it's just all those what you might call them touch points. I don't know if we can use other, other stuff that we can relate to, but I think you mentioned that. Yeah, well, it seems. Um, yeah, we mm. talked to um, uh, Andrea Rasit Mimini in um, episode 144. Yeah. We, he he talked a lot about uh, cross-channel mm. ecosystems, and he and he mentioned thresholds, of course, but he also talked about seams exactly. where thresholds touch each other uh, but that's that's i think it's similar to what i was saying with portals and thresholds that they they you know you go from one space into another space and, and just that i mean that what alistair did was he actually created uh, a portal for us within the workshop because he, he works with experiential workshops he made the workshop very physical he made the participants a part of the presentation so if we didn't do our part in the presentation as he was moving along the presentation couldn't continue so we were learning what he was doing to us, he was designing the workshop so that we would be able to understand the information better uh, by using our senses more. And I think that's what we need to take away as designers, that we can do what Alistair does in designing experiences as well, using more of what it is to be human. 
Yeah, I, I love the whole um, kind of reverse thinking of some of this because we, we focus so much on kind of like, um, I suppose, pimping, you know, puffing up and, and making experiences more mm. delightful, kind of more exciting, exhilarating, um, entertaining, all these things. Um, whereas Alison talks about de-augmenting, so, so, so reducing so you can allow focus, mm. like you said about, um, you know, maybe putting the cap on um, to help you focus or, or um, you put kind of noise cancelling headphones on to reduce noise so you can actually focus on what you're, on the person you're actually here, you know, trying to talk to or trying to listen to. There's, there's ways in which we, we could work better maybe as designers to, well, reduce noise mm. um, in designs in order to um, allow people to, to survive, I guess, survive experiences. Yeah, exactly. There's also some additional content um, from our um, chat with Alistair, we recorded um, a special event clip called Journey Number Six. Oh yeah, of course. Um, where we we geek out a little bit on um, mm. on, on on one of these um, experiential journeys uh, to do with taking mm. bus number fifty three from the hotel into town. It's, it's it's really good fun to listen to. They're obviously aware of all these problems because there are many many problems, and everybody's talking about them at the conference. Must be awful having a kind of 250 UXs and information architects at your hotel. Yeah, why do you fail to see that there is a solution to the frustration that guests are expressing? This is what interests me. How? Why don't they see, or why aren't they interested in solving that? Or because well, it's now becoming just part of this experience of the hotel. Well, I mean, people Mm. become habituated Mm. to their environments. I mean, this is you know when when I do. Um, sensory audits for museums and visitor attraction places. One of the key things about that is taking management around the place and slowing them down mm. enough to actually notice the things which are paining their mm. customers. Yeah. And yet they walk through those buildings day in, day out, but they can't see it. And again, this mm. is this thing about perception and the way that sort of human beings can delete out aggravating things if they see it enough <laughs> um and so so it's it is it is natural is it and again it is one of these things of actually sort of when when trying to deliver and design this stuff of really really forcing yourself back into a state of actually being able to see stuff as a human being mm-hmm. um because because otherwise you'll you'll begin to lose contact with why you have an endless stream of slightly aggravated customers turning up but i think i think almost the saddest aspect of of the variations of journey number six i've, I've put myself through this 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 conference is i've now learned them so if if this conference should happen it won't do but it should happen to come back to this hotel next year mm-hmm. the, the the journey will be completely different because i know exactly how to take myself from bus number 53 down to the hotel entrance i know exactly how to park my car mm-hmm. Those processes now, uh, I've assimilated them. Yes, and and that's of course the issue of adaptability and compliance of humans. Mm. That people will comply to a system, even if the system doesn't make sense. So, thank you for joining us today. Um, as Perz has mentioned, we will have show notes um, from this episode on the website, uxpodcast.com. They should also be available in your podcast clients. Um, if you aren't already a subscriber to us, then please add us to your podcasting client of choice. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side.
Knock, knock. Who's there? Rudolph. Rudolph who? Money is the Rudolph all evil. Oh, it's not even Christmas.